Welcome to season two, episode five of the mixtape with Scott. Uh, today, I have a great guest who I'm excited to share with you. But before I introduce him, we had to go through the liturgy about the role of stories in our lives. I don't know why I did it in that voice. Uh, I'm excited. I love reading this part. Each week, I'm going to read to you a line from a great book by Sue Johnson entitled Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, as it can help manage expectations for you about me and about the podcast. We use stories to make sense of our lives. We use stories as models to guide us in the future and we shape stories and then stories shape us. <clears throat> that is what the Mixtape with Scott podcast is about. The podcast is devoted to hearing the personal stories of economists, scientists, and authors. As you listen to these people's stories, my hope is that you fear you hear the faint traces of your own story woven into the fabric of their life. I hope that by listening without judgment to this person's life, you feel a sense of connection to them because we are all one and we're connected. I hope that once the podcast is over, you are left with a new story that helps you and me make sense of our lives and that you have a model to help us navigate your own life and that I have a model in this person's story to navigate my life as I continue to update my own model. So with that, let me give a warm introduction to Dr. Paul Oyer, one of my favorite labor economists and authors in the profession. I have a fondness, as you may have noticed, for the labor economists. I like that tribe. Paul is a professor at Stanford. He's also a graduate of Princeton, uh, which, for those who've been paying attention, has been, going back to season one, a, a fascination of mine because it's sort of the birthplace of a renaissance and empirical micro under Orly Ashenfelter, David Cardinal, and Kruger to help kind of launch this, you know, new worldview of doing uh, applied work. Uh, and Paul was there. And Paul is also the author of several great general interest books that I love that explain economics to normal people. Um, normal people. That's probably a Freudian slip, but uh, uh, I'm not sure economists are quote, normal people, but uh, we do have a wonderful field. So my favorite of his is a book that explains um, economics. It's called Everything You Need to Know About Economics Can Be Learned from Online Dating, and I assign it every semester to my students. It's the only place you can really learn a lot of the new labor um, at that level. He also has a new book on sports that accomplishes much of the same thing. Thanks again to Paul for sitting down with me and let me eavesdrop on his life as he walked me through it. I'm Scott Cunningham, the host of The Mixtape with Scott. Okay, well, it is uh, my pleasure to have uh, a person uh, this week on the podcast. I've kind of gotten to know a little bit from a distance in the uh, last several years, uh, Dr. Paul Oyer from uh, Stanford University. Paul, thanks for being on the, the, the podcast. My pleasure, Scott. Well, so for everybody listening, could you just sort of introduce yourself? Um, I, I said your name, but you could say sort of where you're from, uh, what, what your employer is, and sort of what you do for a living? Yeah, sure. So I'm a labor economist uh, here at Stanford University in the Graduate School of Business, where I mostly teach MBAs. Um, I am also the senior associate dean overseeing the whole MBA program right now, which has been interested during, interesting during COVID practicing, we teach management, and now the last few years I've been practicing it as well. Before that, uh, I, I've been at Stanford 22 years, 
and came from uh, came here after four years at the Kellogg School, which was a, a great place to start my career. And uh, before that, I got my PhD at Princeton. Wow, I did not realize you were the you were associate dean over the MBA program at Stanford. That's that's really what what's what's Stanford's MBA program ranked? I know you probably know that by heart, but <laughs> actually, actually, it depends on the ranking you look at. And we um, are fortunate; we kind of ignore the rankings. Oh yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that know, means you're like no. That means you're in the top three. Only yeah. only the people in the very top can ignore the rankings. Yeah, I mean it's pretty much us and Harvard. Yeah. And, and the others, there's, you know, Kellogg, uh, Wharton, those are great, great schools. Yeah. But in terms of like, by, if you just look at the revealed preference, none of our, none of, nobody applies to Stanford gets in and turns us down to go to say Kellogg or Wharton. Oh, so it's like a natural sort. There's a natural sorting into the Stanford versus like some of the others. Yeah. Stanford and Harvard, you know, the win rates there are are different that a lot of people choose one or the other based on personal preference or geographic preference. But. Mm. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm going to end up wanting to talk to you more about that in a minute then. Well, let me, let, before we get started into your career and you know, what you do, what your day job is like, can you tell me uh, where you're from? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in a town called Nutley, New Jersey. Oh, Nutley, okay. Nutley's famous for three things. Uh, it's the hometown of Martha Stewart and Robert Blake, both both of whom did some jail time. Oh yeah, so Blake that, Blake uh, allegedly killed somebody, right? Uh, he allegedly um, had a contract put out on his wife, oh. uh, and uh, so he didn't do the killing, but he paid someone to do it. I don't but think it was markets don't fun- those markets seem like they should function well, but it seems like you always get people always get caught. But the um, well, on a related note, the third thing Nutley is known for is. Um, there are often scenes in Nutley in The Sopranos. So oh. I grew up in this town that was very Sopranos-esque. I knew I knew the Sopranos characters. Oh, I, that's crazy. How yeah. close are you to, were you to Manhattan? Um, about 10 miles from the Lincoln Tunnel. Oh, my wow. Was, but my, it was very much a working class town, but my, you know, my father was a doctor and we were sort of, you know, we were, um, I, I don't, come from a hard scrabble background although some of my classmates from elementary school and high school did mm. and you what? know everybody like we everybody idolized bruce springsteen oh i bet yeah <laughs> right 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 uh that's a great person that the mix the mixtape was a lot of bruce springsteen and uh stuff like that and, yeah and yeah was- <laughs> right right uh greetings from asbury park that's my favorite one yeah, I'm I'm sure it's a big club that that says that. Um, uh, so was it a small town? Was it kind of like growing up in a small town? No, it's thirty thousand people, probably five hundred people in my graduating class from high school. Many, you know, probably half of them went on to college. You know, I'm old, so uh, mm. only about half of them went on to college. And of those, most probably just went to commuter schools, Montclair State, um, Newark College of Engineering, which is now known as uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology, all these local sorts of schools. Yeah. And then I I was the youngest of four and all my sisters had gone off to other places. I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, which was quite a change uh, from Nutley in many ways. And, um, you know, very, yeah, it was where I learned uh, 
where I really learned about academics because the high school I went to wasn't the most academically oriented in the world. Was, were you, did you like school when you were in high school? Well, I hated my high school. <laughs> did you really? I, I, you know, it was a, it was a bad, Nutley wasn't a great place to be kind of, a, um, you know, bookish. Uh. So uh, I was, I was ready to, certainly ready to get out of Nutley as soon as I could. You liked reading or you liked your studies and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, I was always good at math and like everybody, like every PhD economist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sure, I liked reading. I mean, I was a pretty good student and um, not top of the class because I was kind of a screw off in high school. Yeah. So, so I, you, 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 you were, you would say though, you were, you really were good. You would just say about like, you were good at math. That was like, that, that was what you just had the, you had a natural aptitude towards mathematics and was yeah, that what I mean, you liked for, too? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, relative to the population, I have a very high aptitude towards math relative to the peer groups you and I run in. I don't have that. <laughs> right. <towards> math. Right. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So, but right. you know, in my high school and even in my college, I was an outlier in math. Then mm. I don't know. I'm sure. I don't know if you had the same experience. I remember getting to Princeton, and then I I was even an outlier in my. I, I have an MBA. Very unusual for a college for, for a economist. I went and got an MBA because I thought I was going to work in the real world. And even there, I was sort of you know one of the better students math wise. And then I don't know, like that first week of grad school at Princeton, where you look around and you're like, oh, okay, I'm not at the top of the distribution <laughs> anymore. Right. There's all these people who just know so much math that I don't know either. So through some combination of being having higher IQs and having already gotten master's degrees in foreign universities and things like right. that. Right, 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 right. Well, I so when you got to Middlebury, wait, what was that? No, I was just going to say that that first month or two of Princeton, boy, that was humbling yeah. to see all these people who were so smart. Yeah. Yeah. When you were uh, at Middlebury, what, what, what did you major in? Math. Math and computer science is what I saw, right? Math and, well, okay. But you know, if you, if you were a college graduate in 1985, the department was called math and computer science. Oh, it wasn't a double major. Oh, no, okay. I probably took two or three computer science class classes, which I was just young enough. Like the generation before me, it was punch cards. We right. were sitting there with a deck mini computer you know what you know what nobody even knows what that means anymore no a computer terminal that you know you would program in basic or oh yeah yeah so you were like what were you learning basic were you learning like uh pascal or c c or anything like that basic if i remember correctly it was basic fortran and pass and and c and c no 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 c was later maybe that was when i was in grad school. maybe that was when i was in uh my mba program Basic yeah. Fortran and I don't know. Yeah. I don't even remember. But you, so did, so did you take any econ when you were at Middlebury? A little bit, but not much, just a few classes. Would um, you take, why did you, you take any? I thought I might be interested in, in it and I was, but I just got going down the math track. I'm not sure why. Um, I mean, I wrote, I actually wrote a thesis, which God, I mean, I can't even tell you how bad it, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so bad. It was about like regression in the stock market and something. It was like 
probably the most, um, you know, like, especially as a guy who, who uh, is so focused on causal inference, you, right. you, you'd really be ashamed of me. <laughs> um, and I had an advisor from economics as well as from math for that. But, um, you know, it's really nice about going to a liberal arts college, though, is, uh, you know, I had an advisor and this math professor is a great guy. John Emerson was his name. He was a wonderful guy. He was my, I took a bunch of classes from him and he taught. And then he became some sort of administrator. And I happened to go back through Middlebury and stop by his office. And there is no, there's nothing you can do to make a professor at a liberal arts college happier than to have been their student and just stop by and say, hey, how you doing? I'm a professor at Stanford now. I cannot even <laughs> fathom. Uh, what, what did he say? He must have been so, so delightful. So happy. Oh, oh man. You know, we're all excited when our students come by. So anyway, that was, he was a great guy, big, inf you know, big influence. But, you know, I think this is different now because I was in college in the 80s. Neither him nor anybody else kind of ever said, maybe you should go get a PhD. I mean, it just, mm. maybe, maybe they know better than I do that I wouldn't that I shouldn't, but uh, I like, you know, it just, it wasn't, there wasn't this sort of research right. uh, PhD pipeline back then. Like yeah. Go work for, you know, go be a pre-doc or go apply right. to a PhD program. So it never mm -hmm. really occurred to me. That's why. And, and the other thing is like, you know, you go to a liberal arts college, Swarthmore is the exception, but like, I didn't know what an engineer was. Right. I got to my first job and I thought engineers drove trains. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's a little bit of, a, of something you miss by going to, like, I probably would have enjoyed taking a lot of engineering classes, but I never I didn't even know what that was. Yeah. 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 Huh. So you graduate and, but you're not, it's not on your mind to become an economist. What's on your mind? So it's uh, to be a captain of industry. I went yeah. on. Uh, I went off to a consulting firm at the time. It was a very sought after job. Unfortunately, the firm hasn't uh, done as well lately. I went to a company called Booz Allen. Mm. It used to be a strategy consulting firm on top of the government consulting firm that still exists. And it was, I mean, that was super interesting. Two years, mm. of, like every few months you change industries. You So, you know, I was for a while, for a while, I was the expert on a certain part of the plastic injection molded uh outdoor furniture market right i mean you become just this incredible expert in these niche little things right and that was really interesting for two years and then i went back to business school i didn't get into stanford uh mm. which is ironic because i now oversee the admissions department for the mba program yeah uh, but they were they rejected me twice and so i went off to the yale school of management and um and i got super into the quantitative classes to the extent that we have quantitative classes in MBA program. This was in the late eighties, early nineties, late eighties, late eighties. Actually, um, I got to, well, I got to, um, I started my program in September of 1987. Yeah. And of course at that point I didn't really want to, but all my classmates were hoping, not all of them, but many of them were hoping to go to wall street mm. and, you know, most people may not be old enough to know that that quickly that dream evaporated about six weeks later because there was mm. the market crash in October of 1987. Oh, yeah, right. Um, I eventually wrote a paper about I have this paper about the careers of investment bankers in the Journal of Finance, which uh, I can relate to personally because a lot of my classmates 
for exogenous reasons, never entered the world of finance. Huh. It was that disruptive. It was that disruptive that it's like literally the the whole labor market, just kind of a big chunk of it got carved out. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. So if you, there's a graph in this paper I wrote in the journal of finance about this, which shows this is for Stanford, but it would be true at Yale too. It just shows the fraction of the class that went into finance that graduated in 87 versus 88 and 89. And it drops off a cliff. And the point of the paper is if you look 20 years later, that distinction still exists, right? So these initial conditions for market reasons have these incredibly long-term have these big long-term effects on people that have real money. I don't know about on utility terms, but in dollar terms, the effects are huge, right? Because if you entered the finance world in 1987 and stayed in it for 30 years yeah. versus if you entered the consumer packaged goods marketing world in 1988 and stayed there for 30 years, the difference in financial remuneration in those 30 years is like, you know, almost an order of magnitude. Right. Right. Wow. It, it, it's a permanent, it was a permanent reshuffling of the management exactly. labor supply. Exactly. And cause it was just so what, what, what's the story? Why, why was it so out of whack? Well, it's just, what's the, the story I tell in the paper I wrote is that once you get, you know, there's something about industry specific skills or industry specific match that not match because it's 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 all about once you're there you're stuck there or once you're not there you never get in so it's shocking like when the market picks back up people aren't moving from consumer packaged goods back into finance yeah they missed the boat when they graduate and that's right. the end yeah, yeah 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 and so you know the story i tell in the paper is that investment bankers are made they're not born mm. right so mm. it's and and then um, but i went off I, so I, I was never that interested in finance, but I really got into these like production and operations management, these operations research type classes when I was at Yale. So I went off to work. Um, so in 1989, I graduated and I went off to a high tech company called 3Com Corporation, mm. which, um, you know, is pretty much out of, I had some stock options and whatnot, and those were worth exactly $7 and over my entire <laughs> career, I think. Um, if that, and, and, um, I went to work there in production because back in the late eighties, this was 1989, when I graduated, people still made things here in Silicon Valley. So I moved out to Silicon Valley and I worked on the production floor in Santa Clara, California for this company. And we made PC boards and other sorts of things that involve production. And, you know, my job was to plan the production line and to, you know, do things like that. And, 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 um, you know, for a while, it was kind of applying these techniques we'd learned in, in our MBA program. But, you know, the, it just wasn't that exciting. I mean, the real world, I quickly decided the real world was boring in relative to, like, I, I always, I'm, I mean, this won't, like everybody who goes on to become an economist, I liked playing with numbers. I liked spreadsheets, things like that. And yeah you know, the job was just kind of meetings and whatever, which is you, what I, ironically what I do now. But you, you thought maybe you would go on to become like a path to CEO or something like that, but you learned kind of quickly. 
something you learned something about yourself or something about the job? Yeah, I learned something about myself. I didn't see my, you know, I didn't at the time have a lot of interest in climbing the corporate ladder and I wanted to sit around. I wanted to, I didn't know it existed yet, but I wanted to program in Stata. (laughs) (laughs) I, I didn't know that's what I wanted to do, but that's what I wanted to do. And somehow, somehow I figured out this whole idea of becoming an economist and, um, and I called up Sharon Oster. I don't know if yeah. Sharon, Emily's mother, who, um, who was, I had taken several classes from during my MBA program. And I called her up and said, oh, I was thinking of getting, becoming an economist. And she's the one who said, well, and, and for reasons I have no, I, I can't even remember the reasons for this. I wanted to be a labor economist. Like if you ask, I wrote my essay in 1992 to go to graduate school. And like the one page thing on what I wanted to do was what I ended up doing. Like I said, I want to study personnel economics. I didn't say those words because I didn't know they existed. And I said, oh, I want to study labor market problems and why firms, how firms solve these problems and things like that. Mm. How I, why I was interested in that, I have no was Lazier already doing work on that? Was Lazier that was, that in your Lazier head? Lazier was doing. Lazier was doing, but I didn't know anything about Lazier because I called Sharon Oster, and she said, and I described what I want to do, and she said, "Oh, you should apply to Princeton because oh. Princeton's good at labor economics." Right. And I was like, "All right, I'll apply to Princeton," and you know, maybe she mentioned Orly's name, and and like, so I applied to Princeton, and this is the this is a great you know this is where I had the most luck that I know of in my whole life. I applied to Princeton and, you know, I'd been out of undergrad for seven years. So I send my application in and, you know, my test scores are fine, my GPA, all that. So that's not going to hold me back, but um, it's not going to get me in, you know, the people applying to Princeton, but, you know, it put me in the running and my file got assigned. I was told this years later, my file got assigned to a, uh, some a member of the faculty was on the admissions committee and he said, oh, this guy has an MBA. He's been working. This is, he's not going to really be serious about this. Let's reject him. And um, the administrative person in charge of the print, you know, the administrative person who sends out the rejection letters or whatever from the PhD office at Princeton's economics department, she apparently reads my file and says, well, he says in his essay, he wants to do labor economics. So let's send it over to the industrial relations guys. So they sent yeah. my file to Hank Farber and David Card. And they're like, yeah, let this guy in. <laughs> Change. I mean, if they hadn't, if, if she hadn't sent it over there, I would have been rejected. I probably wouldn't have gone to grad school. Wow. I wouldn't have bothered. You know, the other place I got in, I didn't get funding. It was, I probably wouldn't have left my career to go back to grad school if it hadn't been for this. You know, I got into Princeton. They gave me the IR section fellowship, which was the biggest one in Princeton. So what does that mean? I don't, you know, I know that in the history of design based causal inference, it's really the story is of Princeton's industrial relations section is it seems like with Orly and Card and Kruger and all the students and everybody, but I don't really understand what is the industrial relations section. It's like some, it's like, the Hoover Institute, or it's like, no. like an endowment or something. Yeah, it does have its separate endowment. So Princeton has a lot of little air, little centers. I guess section. I don't know what we would probably call it a center here at Stanford, mm-hmm. and they have a lot of little centers. You know, there's one for 
development economics that was Angus and Deaton and Ann Case when I was there and as other mm -hmm. people now. You know, there's all these, there's one for finance that wasn't there when I was there, but it's become a big deal. And, but I think the first one of these, of any real um, meaning was, was the industrial relations section, which was financed by, you know, I, I, there's a his, there's a book out, there's, they've sent a book out. I think I have it on my, it's not, I thought it was on my coffee table, but it's not. Anyway, and, you know, Al Reese was there and yeah. all these other people. And then Orly came through and first, and, and they just had the biggest endowment mm. uh, and the, the, of anything like it. So we were very well funded even back in the 90s, you know, not by modern standards. We were terribly funded, of course, right. but by, local, by standards at the time, you know, like, you know, I would have plenty of money to work as an RA every summer for Hank Farber. And if he didn't have anything for me to do, I would get paid as an RA to work on my thesis. Right. right. And yeah, it was, it was, and, and it was Orly when I was there, it was Orly, David, Alan Kruger, David Card, Orly Ashfelder, Alan Kruger. And my advisor, my main advisor was Hank Farber. And my secondary advisor was David. And I mean, the students there, I mean, they're the other students that you would, you know, have as peers were also incredible. So, you know, I was in, um, I, the, well, um, guy named Kevin Halleck was now a university president was a close contemporary of mine. Um, Katie Grady, would she have been in there with you or she's she not a couple of years ahead of me. So I didn't know her very well. Oh, okay. I, I met her, you know, I, we, I certainly knew her, but we weren't right. close. Yeah. And, um, uh, Ken Che, who's, um, was, oh, really? Ken Che was there. Okay. Ken was the, Ken, he was the real star of, of things. Uh, oh, he, wow. he's, he was incredibly, he's God, that guy is sharp. Yeah. Um, so, and, and then a bunch of others over the years, I mean, that I was there and it was great. And, and I spent, so the thing was, I had some interest in theory. In fact, one of my, one of my, chapters of my thesis was a theoretical paper but i got very lucky because a guy named alan manning from lse came to yeah. visit, mm -hmm. and alan helped me a lot and then on top of that hank was a very good friend and co-author of bob gibbons and at some point hank hooked me up with bob who both helped me with some of my papers and probably more importantly wrote me a letter on the job market and knew mm. which people at which business schools would find what I did interesting. And, you know, there was Eddie, of course, but I didn't get a job at Stamp who was interested. I, I'd met Eddie through giving a seminar and, and he was very, he was a wonderful, uh, he was wonderfully helpful to me on the job market, but they, they didn't have a job at Stanford that year. And then a few years later, uh, Eddie was still interested in what I was doing and this job. Well, that's another story of, of where, you know, the amount of, luck that has struck me to land me in this position is yeah yeah i mean uh what what do you what's sort of the if you had to guess what was the value added or the treatment effect of princeton's you know at that time for you in your personal life how are you different oh you mean relative to if i got into another school? exactly yeah yeah or even what? somewhere else within princeton if you hadn't have been in the industrial relations section I think it was high, but not like, I, I mean, obviously there were students at that same time who went off to 
and worked with. Um, uh, that was pre-Josh Angris. I'm trying to think who it would have been. But anyway, there were other good places to become a good labor economist. Mm. I, I don't, I don't, I think maybe Princeton was the best, but, um, you know, there were other places. So well, it's hard did, to did, say. Was, like, uh, would point, you have I mean, said, like, you know, like we think about causal inference and like, you know, natural experiments and instruments and, you know, like, explicit counterfactuals and all that stuff like it, it's it's like a coherent thing you know yeah. but like w- did did you did you sense when you were there that it was like you were getting a slightly different take on empirical ways of doing analysis than you would have gotten at like harvard or anywhere else did it did you feel like there was something unusual about your of course you don't really know but did you, is it now looking back I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, I think maybe with a couple of exceptions, Harvard being one of them, I think I did. I mean, you would go into seminars. At, I started going to the labor seminar the week I arrived because they'd given me their fellowship and I figured I might as well learn as much as I can. So even though I was still like treading water in core microeconomics yeah. class, I would still go to the seminar just to see what's going on. And of course, two things were different there than some other places. And one is exactly what you're saying, the focus on causal things. But then the other thing is Princeton back then was a pretty theoretical place. Mm. And I think you know, the, the they weren't, there was, there wasn't much, there was nothing really going on structurally. There was no, no structural work going on either, you know, at Princeton or among the people that, that they were working with. And yeah, so there was a real focus on empirical methods. I mean, Hank Barber used to say at the beginning of like within five minutes of every seminar, okay, what are we regressing on what? Right. Right. So that was, that was, that was a real distinction relative to some, because at the time, a lot of the world was in the, you know, in the early nineties, a lot of the world was focused still on game theory. Yeah. Right. Did you mention Bob Gibbons? He's got that, that, that applied game theory book, right? That it's kind of like a, yeah. So, so you're, you were kind of sorting a little bit into this, into uh micro, you know, like not necessarily, I mean, like you were doing theory, you were kind of interested in economic theory, but you're like this, you're this full-blown modern labor economist too, with all this empirical work. Yeah. But I mean, I, I do very lowbrow theory. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Right. I, I, you know, it's like, you know, very, very, I mean, and it, I, I, I don't say that to, like, I don't even think of that as a negative thing. There's not enough lowbrow theory anymore. I mean, Eddie Lazier, who's my favorite economist ever made his career, but like the impact he had on the profession doing low, lowbrow, he did a little higher brow than me, but lowish brow theory is amazing. Cause you know, if you, it doesn't matter the, the, it's really about the insight in mm. my mind, not the technique. Right. I have, right. Co- I have a lot of colleagues in the profession and even on this hall at Stanford who might disagree with that, but yeah. Well, what's so special about him to you about Eddie Lazier? Oh, Eddie, Eddie, he's just the most, he's the most natural and he was the most natural economist you've ever met in your life. I mean, I, I used to joke that he, um, you know, we were having, he won some award and, and what I said about him that night was, I'm pretty sure 
on the day he was born, he weighed the costs and benefits of leaving his mother's womb. So, (laughs) I mean, he, he saw the heart of every economic, I mean, like he just saw the economics of every problem so naturally and so immediately. Mm. And just, you know, and the other thing was like, you can go to seminars and I'd be like bored out of my mind, not paying any attention at any could I mean like he loved it so much he would still be asking the most you know penetrating and interesting questions of anybody so that's mm-hmm. one thing I mean the other thing that was great is that then translated into he wrote these papers that were so simple like he'd read the abstract and I was like well I don't need to read the paper I got the I got the point and it's like right. why, didn't think, why didn't I think of that 10 years ago and write that model down mm-hmm. so very and then on top of everything else on top of the research, I mean, Eddie was just like the, he was a true mensch, right? This Mm. was a guy who gave more in terms of public service to the profession Mm. than anybody. And, 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 um, as I often say about him, it's very ironic because he was also the most hardcore, rational, you know, homo economicus believer. He was very, he was not a friend of behavioral economics, shall we say. Mm. And, And, uh, he was, a great despite that he was like one of the great providers of public goods in the profession despite the fact that he would never model somebody acting in the way <laughs> right 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 um uh, you know i i think you're you know i i think that uh you've managed you, that that's actually you know the i i, I see in your book um the everything I, you know, of course, you know, I'm the biggest fan of the, of that book that's ever lived. I, I really, I really think that that book, book, it's unreal. It is unbelievable. I really think it's like a, the, the thing about that book, everything I want to know about economics, I learned from online data. I have several, I, I give it away. And um, the, the thing is that I don't think a lot of people know is like, there's like, you know, a genre of economics which is the um, uh, the book I'm going to assign in principles that won't be the textbook, but I'm going to assign it to genre. And it's like Ken Elzinga's Fatal Equilibrium, which is a detective story of a guy that uses economics to solve, you know, crimes. Russ Roberts' Invisible Heart, which is a romance novel, uh, you know. But then, and then there's like Lance Stephen Landsberg's Armchair Economist. Paul Krugman's accidental theorist, even Freakonomics kind of fits that, but those four kind of are more of where I see your book, uh, the books that you write, which is like this whole, it's like you explaining how economics is so broadly applicable to all of, of, of life. And, um, but and so to do it to pull it off is just like a feat, you know, because you have to like somehow make all of this economics sell at this at this really attractive level without it feeling like a gimmick. And everything I want to know about economics I learned from online dating, it's really unbelievable because it's like all of modern labor, you know, in there. It's like search signaling cheap talk two-sided matching returns to skill and education beauty discrimination you wouldn't think that it's like 
it, it's kind of what you just said actually about when I, when I, I have, a, I, when I read that book, your book, I just thought I was supposed to write this book. <laughs> I, I was supposed to be the one to write this book. I'm the one that's interested in, in two-sided matching and room and, and like another, partnerships and another. stuff. And, and you did, yeah. and it's just absolutely brilliant. It's just a brilliant, and it's so well written. Um, yeah. I really think it's a fantastic book. Thank you. That is very kind. I mean, Thank so you, when did you start having the, now you've written a new one, uh, An Economist Goes to the Game, and I want to hear about it, hear, hear, hear about it, but when did you start having these books inside you? When did you notice there were these books inside you? Well, <laughs> the, these books inside me that's a really interesting way of putting it and by the way this last one the sports book I mean it just took so long to get it to where I wanted it so the the dating book is like very quick it just came right out and maybe that's because the process of dating didn't last that long I was lucky I found my wife after a year or so yeah whereas the sports thing has been a long time a, a lifelong thing I think it I think I was just looking ready, you know, to, to find new challenges. Mm. And, and I'm, you know, I get a lot of grief for the book, especially the dating book. The online but, dating book, you get grief from yeah, it? You know, you know, serious economists think, well, why oh, are you yeah. instead of writing a paper for Econometrica? And, right. and my view is, my view is, I, I mean, more power to everybody who's writing only who's only spending their time writing papers for an econometrica that's great um but like what writing papers for econometrica doesn't make us useful mm -hmm. helping uh, helping what people write in econometrica helping that influence the way people think and learn that's where things are useful yeah. and you could do that in a policy way or something like that and i just did it more i've always been like okay well let me see how I can help some people see the value of what we're doing. Totally. And I, I, I didn't, in, I didn't, the book came, came, the dating book just kind of arose out of nowhere. I went on my very first date and I wrote an email that night to a good friend of mine explaining what had happened. Yeah. And she wrote back and she said, Oh, you should write a book about this. And I was like, nah, that's, and, and, but then, you know, I don't know, maybe that is what really got the idea going in my mind. And then, but, you know, if you go out and, and start online dating and you're a labor economist, yeah. I mean, it just really is, it is like, I didn't, it's the, the idea of doing this in a dating context is, it's a bit gimmicky. Yeah. Like it's not that gimmicky. Oh, it's it's it only of, no. I that's the thing is, and I guess like this is probably because I, I I study these you know technology matching sexual markets and stuff. Yeah. But it's not gimmicky at all. It's completely the right way to think. I mean, in my opinion, it's like literally the way to better to understand what these platforms are doing. Uh, I, I think what's really kind of interesting. That's why I always kind of think is so neat about it is. Um, you know, when you teach principles of micro, which you probably don't teach that class, but like when you teach I principles do. of micro, oh, you do teach it. Well, well you know, it, it's, it's like you, you don't get to get into necessarily all this rich stuff because not all the textbooks have things like heterogeneous. They don't have yeah. a lot of heterogeneous stuff. 
you know? And so, cause you know, it just takes so much time to build to it. And it's like, I always kind of wonder how, the, you know, in a hundred years, how are we going to be doing this? Because everything's, everything interesting is growing at the extensive margins. And, and like, I don't know how you ever can get to this because of how long it takes to cover production functions and, and cost functions and stuff. And so, well, it's like this, this is the only way your book is like the only way I know how to tell students about this book and Roth, Al Roth's, uh, you know, who gets what, um, is a way to talk to people about modern markets have a tremendous amount of matching. They have a tremendous amount of search. It's, you know, modern markets prices are very complicated, even concepts, you know, that are, that are functioning in ways that, well, sometimes they're not there. And then, and then sometimes they're that, that isn't exactly it. And, you know, you, you just, you do such a great job of, of walking people through so much uh, advanced material that that's, you know, that's not ordinarily accessible. Tell me about the new book. I mean, so what's, what's new about this new book? Well, the new book. So the new book started out when my son was in was he still in high school? He was in college, I guess. My son was in college and he's a big sports fan. We always did a lot of sports stuff together. And I don't know. And he was an English major. So he's a really good writer. And we just started talking about, well, maybe I could do what I'd done in the dating context in the sports context with him, his help. And it'd be kind of like a, our story of sports together. And, and it didn't quite work out exactly along those lines for two reasons. One, he got older. By the time we got this done, he was older and had his own life as a lawyer. And, you know, in, and he's basically basically a communist who doesn't believe in markets anyway. So that became kind of, that became a little bit of an impediment too. <laughs> and the other thing is, the other thing is like some of the, you know, oh, let's tell our story. You know, it's, that was that's interesting in a couple of contexts within the book, but like, you know, I'm not, you know, nobody wants to read Paul Lawyer's memoir, right? I'm not. Right. Uh, so, so there's the book actually starts with my son hitting a home run in his little league game. And, you know, there's a couple of other little vignettes from our own lives. Like I explained mixed strategy through our, when he and I used to play ping pong, right? Cause mm as you know, ping pong is basically just one big mixed strategy game. Um, and, but, but then it kind of diverged and I started writing these other, I started writing, he, he helped, he, he helped do some of the research on this. And I just started thinking about well, what are topics in, in sports that, um, where economics is really important. And of course there's many of them. Mm. And, um, I got hooked up with this guy at Yale. You you published your book at Yale, but I think you had a different yep. editor. My editor's name was Bill Fruit, and he was really interested in this and incredibly patient with me as the book has taken quite a bit of, ended up taking quite a bit of time. But yeah, I, I mean, there were a couple, I, I, I think, you know, again, it's kind of, it's a little different from the dating book in that it's not all labor economics. Right. So like the first chapter, the second chapter is about, why are countries is about comparative advantage and natural advantage and it's why are some countries so good at certain sports mm. and the first chapter i guess it's kind of labor economics it's about youth sports and whether you should invest in your kids sporting career but um that has that's those you know the the and and there's the, those places are probably some of the most surprising things in the book like if you look 
there's a discussion in the part about youth sports about how, you know, I, I take the I take people through the fact that everybody says, oh, you should play sports because you learn teamwork and you learn this and discipline and that. And if you look in the data, there's just nothing to back that up. I mean, as a causal inference guy, you'd love it, right? The correlation between youth sports participation and future income is is high. Right. The evidence that there's a causal link is He's pretty slim. Yeah. If, yeah. I mean, like that's being, you, you were incredibly generous there when you said it's pretty slim. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it looks like, you know, you, so the conclusion is for most of us who are sort of middle class, for people who are middle class or upper middle class, you probably don't want to invest in your kid's sports career for investment purposes. You want to, right. you want to do it as a consumption good because, yeah. you know, youth is, youth is the most, uh, you know, economics is a study of scarce resources and our scarcest resource we have all of all is our youth. Right. Yeah. yeah. So sure. Play sports cause it's fun. And cause you're going to have these memories. Um, but not because you're going to even, and, you know, might, you know, maybe you get a college scholarship, but even the numbers there are very, right. Not very close. But the example, the counter example to that I give is Kevin Durant. So mm -hmm. Kevin Durant was six feet eight and, um, six feet eight when he was 13 and incredibly athletic. Mm -hmm. And if you look at like the demographics of someone from Kevin Durant's background, very humble background, African-American guy, single mother from the city. If you just look at kind of like, you know, you take the Raj Chetty type look at this and you say, well, what are his chances in the regular labor market of moving up in the world? Mm -hmm. They're not that good. Mm. But when you're six feet eight and you're, and you're athletic. Yeah. The, the fraction of people with that, the fraction of people with that background who can then go on to be star athletes is, is high. Mm. Like you can make it in the NBA if you're already six, eight and, and, and athletic when you're 13. Yeah. And so as a result, if you, the best estimate I have is that there are 300,000 African-American men, 320,000 African-American men in the United States right now who were born in 1988. Okay. And of those 320,000 people, Kevin Durant makes 1% of the total income of that group, right? Mm. And NFL and NBA players make like 6 to 7% of the number for a group mm. of 300,000 people. Mm. So, you know, the labor market prospects just weren't right. that are, are you know, not that promising. Right. And, you know, some of the, so, you know, kind of rolling the dice made a lot of sense for some, for, for people, at least if you were already six feet eight. You I need to know your, but you can tell with your family. Yeah. You to can some degree. To some degree, but not, you know, the other example I give in the book, which is somebody who it paid off just as well, but it wasn't as obvious a good bet at the time is Russell Westbrook. Yeah. So this guy is incredibly talented when he's 13 or 14, but he's not that tall. Mm. And like for every Russell Westbrook, there's a hundred or a thousand guys who put in all that effort and are now, you know, not making any money playing basketball. Right. But for right. every Kevin Durant who makes, who's six feet eight, there's maybe only one or two others who yeah, are, yeah. who put in that effort and aren't, and it's not paying off. Well, let me ask you something. So, you know, this whole image, being able to image and likeness, you know, policy change with the NCAA, I'm just curious, 
what do you think is the marginal, how is the marginal athlete being affected by that along all the margins you've thought about, about you know, the ability to, to profit as a student? Yeah, not very much. Like that, the, the name, image, and likeness stuff is great. Don't get me wrong, right? Mm -hmm. markets, like let's let people capture their value in the market and let's not exploit workers, college athletes, yeah. classic workers. Right. Um, so I'm all for it, but I, it's not having a big effect beyond, I mean, if you look at college athletes, very few of them bring in real revenue in a way that is going to change their, that anybody's going to pay them a lot mm. to be associated with them. Mm -hmm. the other, but, but it is a nice trend. By the way, the other trend that I just love is, as labor economists, we, we should all love is the portal. Right, so you know about the portal where these, um, where the NCAA players in basketball, football, and other sports can now transfer schools much more easily. Yeah, right. So, you know, so not only did we have indentured servitude in the NCAA, where you know you were working for free, well, you get a scholarship. I mean, there's some value, but yeah, you're working for free. They're certainly well below marginal product of labor for many. Of oh, the top, yeah, yeah, yeah. Top players now at least you can, you know, take your, take your um, efforts to the place where even if you're not going to get a direct financial return, you're going to get, you can move to wherever you're going to get the best individual return. In yeah. Whatever way you think that was economists that were helping involved with that? You know, you think about like in economics, well-defined property rights involve transferability, you know, transferability, exclusivity and enforceability with like pollution. So it's like, you know, the, but it, it doesn't seem like the goal ever of the NCAA was like, make sure these labor inputs are, you know, getting priced correctly. I mean, it's like, but like, it, it, did economists have any involvement in any of that at all? I don't know. It's a good question. I actually don't even know how. It yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ed, how did the portal come to be? I mean, I know how the name, image and likeness stuff came about, right? There was a Supreme Court case and then various states started changing things. But I don't quite, I don't, I don't honestly know how much economists were involved. Mm. There must have been, there must have been economists involved in some of the court cases. I'm sure there were expert witnesses in the Ed O'Bannon or whoever it was cases that opened some of this up. And, and that, that's got to go way back. Like, I don't know how much you know about the reserve clause in baseball, right? But in the old days, baseball players also made a lot less than probably their marginal product of labor because they're, you know, they had two choices, play for the team that signed them in the draft or do something other than playing baseball. Mm. And, and when, when they were allowed to start being free agents as a result of kind of indirectly this case involving Kurt Flood and then some negotiations afterwards, there must have been economists who were expert witnesses and in influencing those cases. But I don't actually know that I've not heard the, the, of that direct input. There mm. was, I mean, I do know economists were writing about this. So yeah. they, this, the field of sports economics is not that well known within economics, but a couple of people are real giants who wrote about the reserve clause. Um, Gerald Scully, who I believe is somewhere in Texas, yeah, he's somewhere in Texas. So you may see him at a conference now and then. Mm. Simon, was it Rottenberg? Oh, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. The father of sports economics who wrote mm. this paper about the reserve clause back in the 50s. 
So economists have been studying this a long time. I'm not sure to what degree we affected the actual outcomes of any of this. Mm. I'm sure yeah. we did, but not in a public way. Right. Well, I, I know it's top of the hour and uh, I love talking to you. I have one thing I want to end with. On TikTok, there was a uh, like a, a, a theme that went around where they would say, what's something that lives rent-free in your head? And then people would play funny clips of, scenes from movies that that like they they sort of uh said lived rent free meaning they you you gladly let those memories stick around so what's a paper in economics now that you're an old man uh and you've seen you've, you've been around the block for a long time what's a what's a paper that you've noticed has lived rent free uh in your head um uh, you know for a while Wait, let me get the premise of the, let me get, make sure I get the premise of the question. Like what's a paper that I just think about and has an influence yeah. on the way I. Yeah. It's, I, it's not, it's not a paper that you would say, well, this is my favorite paper or this is the best paper. It's a paper that you just have noticed over the years that it's one of the handful of papers that you just kind of remember a lot or you think about a lot. Ah, such a good question. Such a good question. Um, yeah, so there's a bunch by Eddie that I would that I would point to, um, you know, that I'm always always thinking about, like the, you know, as a simple example, the the one about skill weights in in firm specific human capital, which is like one of those again one of those ideas where if you hear it, you're like you see it everywhere. But I'll mm-hmm. tell you, I'll tell you two others that come to mind. One's one's an obvious one. Have you gone back and read the Spence Signal paper anytime recently? No, I haven't read it, reread it in a while. No. I mean, that's such a great paper and like, yeah. you know, such an insight. Right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. totally. Um, but I'll throw one out off the wall that, that, um, that is a great one. That, that one is one that I think about all the time. I think about signaling thing, all the time. There's a paper I think is incredibly underappreciated that like I see in real life quite a bit and that's Canis Prendergast's paper on the careers of bureaucrats that was in the AAR maybe 20 years ago now. Oh. And basically this is like in a world where it was about like in a world it's just it's a simple eddy like simple model. There's not you know there's the technique is not the is not the um contribution the the idea is the contribution. But basically I'll, I, I won't do a great job of uh, marketing this paper for poor Canis, but I'll try. If you're in a world where you can't pay people necessarily, or well, you can, where it's hard to line up incentives, like a bureaucracy is the example he often gives, where you can't use pay for performance. You want to hire people based on their preferences. Mm. And it just depends on the situation you're in exactly how you do that. So in, in the way he lines this up, this explains why doctors have, why you want doctors who are sympathetic or not with their patients. You want social workers who, who really care about the people they're working for. And then you also want, and, and then the logic behind this, which, um, you know, it's probably very out of, probably would be, you know, uh, um, if, if I state this wrong, I'll get canceled. So I should be careful. But the, 
But basically, if you take this model seriously, it sort of gets at why you would want police who are um, who are not necessarily yeah who have who have biased views against criminals right, right? potential criminals or you'd want customer service agents who are jerks wait so what's the what's the problem if you're not like that let's say let's say you were to try to do pay for service and you did not have people whose preferences were all entangled in the service what what exactly yeah, so, is the problem so if you can't do the pay if you can't get the pay right you yeah. want to, you want to align people whose preferences are in line with the outcome you need in the end, mm. right? And then, so um, anyway, Canis, he wrote a bunch of papers that that should have been revisited during the George Floyd stuff because he then looked at this empirically in police settings and um, huh. talked about how this these types of ideas affected the behavior of policemen and so police officers and the like. Wow, yeah. So you've yeah, got to somehow, but then that means you've got to get, you've got to get ex ante. Uh, the firm needs to get ex ante reasonable signals of preferences, or make the job attractive in a way that people self, or allow them to self, or the yeah, yeah, right, right. You've got to either if you've got this job, but that's the problem is if it's it's got to be attractive to those who have those preferences and not attractive. I mean, in some ways you could, I could imagine compensation, lower compensation almost being part of the design because exactly. you've got people that are getting compensating differentials from the work itself. That's a, no, that's exactly part of the insight. Oh, that's fascinating. The career of bureaucrats. I can't remember the name. <laughs> I'll find it. Okay. You, we'll, I'll follow up with you. That's great. Well, it's so nice to yeah, see you and talk Canis, with you. It's Canis Prendergast at the university. I, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to know how to spell that. I'll, I'll ask you afterwards. Okay. Well, it's really nice to to chat with you. Um, and I'm excited about this new book uh, being out and I'm going to get to uh, assign it. And uh, next I'm, it's going to be, it's going to be hard for me to ever not assign the online dating book though. So I have to, but I'll, I'm a grown up. I can, I can work through that. I appreciate <laughs> that. That's very kind of you. <laughs> All right. You have a great day. Thanks. Thanks very much.